0: With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com.
1: Welcome to the 1CA podcast. This is part two of a two-part series about the role of civil affairs in regional competition for influence. In part one, we heard from Dr. Howard Gambrill-Clark, Retired Colonel David DeRoche and retired Colonel Daniel Hampton. In part two, we're going to hear from Dr. R. Evan Ellis, Research Professor of Latin American Studies, U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute, and Mr. Timothy Faulkner, Strategic Intelligence Advisor for U.S. Army Pacific Command G2. This panel took place as a part of the 2021 Civil Affairs Roundtable, and this discussion was moderated by retired Brigadier General Chris Stockel. Enjoy the show. The human domain is where the conflict starts in competition, and I would add, is decisive in the competition phase by setting conditions in order to deter, deny, or defeat the People's Liberation Army. Let's uh, go over to uh, Dr. Ellis there, and uh, we'll pick it up.
2: Well, thank you very much. And uh, I'd like to thank the Civil Affairs Association and the other partners today for the opportunity to uh, to be with you. Uh, I'd also like to uh, acknowledge uh, the contribution in, in my thoughts uh, to one of my strategic research project students here at the Army War College, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Patrick Blankenship, who uh, has uh, done a very solid paper and, and again uh, gave me some good grist for what I'm about to share with you today. I'm going to concentrate on China and, secondarily, Russia and their activities in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, Certainly, uh, Russia is playing an important role in in looking to uh, destabilize, as been mentioned before, as well as uh, in places like Venezuela, as well as uh, um, in uh, um, certain areas uh, in the domain of information operations. But um, when I focus on on China, I want to emphasize that, for me, the... uh, principal thrust of China's activities is economic in nature, but that does not make it any the less strategic. Uh, It has associated uh, political strategies, institutional uh, components, as well as military and other security support strategies in Latin America. But when we focus on the economic, just to put the uh, information down, um, over the past uh, 20 years, about $160 billion in uh, Chinese investment has gone into the region, mostly uh, in a combination of extractive sectors, uh, markets for Chinese goods and services, and increasingly, in connectivity, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, also, um, in terms of, of tying the region to basically the networks of its flows and its influence in a very mercantilistic fashion, of course, um, since the uh, invention of the Belt and Road concept of formerly in 2013 uh, and its extension to Latin America in 2018, you've had about 19 Latin America countries sign on to Belt and Road in addition, uh, China, through its uh, vehicle of what they call strategic partnerships and comprehensive strategic partnerships, which uh, come oftentimes with a ministerial-level coordinating committee for um, for deconflicting projects and taking them forward, you have 10 countries in Latin America that have signed on to be Chinese strategic partners, so to speak. Um, In addition to that, of course, when you take a look at loans and not just non-financial FDI, you find that about $137 billion in Chinese policy bank loans have gone into the regions since 2005, which is um, significantly greater than um, the the World Bank and and other uh, traditional Western lenders. Um, And even more importantly, in terms of bilateral trade, uh, you've had about $314 billion in bilateral trade. And so virtually every country in the region, as as you move south of Central America, has the PRC as its number one or often number two uh, trading partner, again, establishing very powerful lines of influence through those economic vectors. So what are the impacts of concern um, from a a perspective of of the U.S. and uh, by implication, uh, civil affairs and and DOD? First of all, I I would say that um, number one, there are soft power influences as we have certain agendas and strategic position and access that we're trying to maintain. This often is is a factor of Chinese um, uh, both uh, political leaders as well as business leaders and and others who are willing to do certain actions or not do certain actions, as well as silence their criticism of China, both within their countries and um, in in Asia itself, due to the hope to gain Chinese money or relationship with Chinese companies as local partners, um, as we see in Africa and in many other regions as as well, um, as well as uh, the fear of um, losing those benefits from China um, if uh, one uh, offends China by, by speaking ill of it. In addition, you have have a process of people-to-people diplomacy, which involve oftentimes uh, party-to-party trips, as well as uh, students, uh, businessmen, and, and others um, who are caught up in, in the web of, of trips to China and expectations of, of future benefits or, or future access, which once again has a powerful silencing effect, um, if, if not a propagandistic effect. Beyond those impacts, however, which undermine our attempt to pursue a um, to pursue access, both military uh, as well as a Uh, other uh, strategic goals in terms of democracy, human rights, um, economic policies, et cetera. You also have number two, which is the impact of Chinese uh, increasing uh, digital activities. So here we're talking about not just uh, Huawei and its advancing to 5G in Latin America, but also space architectures, uh, smart cities, and other uh, surveillance architectures, um, which together, as these companies, again, Huawei, Hikivision, uh, ZTE, and others, as they build out fiber optic networks that connect Latin America to others carrying sensitive government and business data, um, it basically puts at risk the ability of future elites, both government elites and business elites, to make sovereign decisions to resist um, or, or at least decide between Chinese and other alternatives, um, as well as, frankly, um, putting at risk the ability of corporations to invest and maintain uh, corporate and technological secrets in the region in in a secure fashion. Um, Beyond this, uh, number three, you have an impact on what I would call um, China serving as an incubator for leftist authoritarianism. So, for example, it's well known um, the 64 billion dollars uh, put in over the past uh, approximately 12 years into uh, Venezuela, especially the oil sector, or the 17 billion dollars which Chinese companies put into Venezuela to uh, Ecuador under the regime of Rafael Correa, um, a little bit less than uh, 10 billion dollars in current or, or uh, hoped for uh, loans uh, under uh, Evo Morales in the in, in Bolivia, and uh, a slew of new projects also under Argentina. But what happens is that there is an important cycle. And I, I'm going to talk a lot more about this authoritarian cycle in, in a minute, because I think this goes is, is key to understanding the nature of how civil affairs can impact great power competition here, because this is the key. Um, what happens is that oftentimes there are non-Chinese or non-great power uh, factors that bring these uh populist, leftist governments into power. They have to do with corruption, popular dissatisfaction with systemic performance, as as we see in other regions. Um, However, um, as the new authoritarians come into power, um, they typically uh, move to change constitutions, uh, change structures, uh, put their people in key uh, judicial or or other institutions to to move away from um, centers of of resistance or um, or divisions of power within government. And so as that happens, and also as they move against certain private sector activities, um, China China steps in as an incubator um, in providing loans uh, and demand for for the products so that those countries do not have to compromise as they move away from a more Western-oriented strategy. Then as those leaders consolidate power, you often see both in um, security terms as well as in major projects, those leaders bring China in um, in ever more important ways. And all at the end of the day, um, the Chinese try to avoid offending um, the United States and, and others. Um, the uh, Chinese play an important role in sustaining those leaders in power as they bring in not only economic projects, but other things. In the case of Venezuela, for, for example, some uh, prototype social capital systems, uh, something called the uh, fatherland identity card, for example, uh, or uh, certain types of security cooperation. Um, the fourth area of impact, of course, is on Taiwan. Um, as the group knows, uh, you have uh, currently nine of the remaining countries that recognize Taiwan globally concentrated in the Western Hemisphere. You have uh, four, if you count Belize uh, in Central America, you have another four in the Caribbean, and you have Paraguay in um, in, the, um, in in the in South America. The risk, however, is that especially with COVID, um, those countries have been put significantly at risk. Uh, Taiwan did an admirable job of of, of helping with economic and other needs uh, during the pandemic period. However, the uh, situation they're left in with the need for access to Chinese and other markets and, and funds uh, puts many of them at risk. Uh, the need right now of many of them, including, for example, Paraguay um, for greater access to um, to uh, vaccines, again, um, you know, creates a pressure. And what we see historically, if we looked at the change in Costa Rica, if we look at the change um, in, in El Salvador after uh, 2017 in Panama and the Dominican Republic, is there's oftentimes an explosion of Chinese influence when you have those those flips, uh, and, you know, where um, business leaders and others are co-opted, um, taken to, to China on, on trips and, and given uh, you know, particularistically beneficial you know business deals. Uh, previously, uh, Taiwan facing uh, youth elites uh, who were studying in places like Tamkang in in Taipei are redirected to study in China uh, through a series of non-transparent MOUs. Uh, Chinese companies are able to come into the telecom sector, the electricity sector, um, the uh, construction services sector. And the bottom line is that um, you know these types of the type of work that Taiwan does is also very much in line with the types of functions that U.S. civil affairs oftentimes engage in um, so Across the the board, you have, um, again, destabilizing soft power, digital impacts, left authoritarianism, and Taiwan, all of which uh, create implications for U.S. military access and the access of of China to the region. So it's not just about who gets the money from from the deals. And frankly, in the COVID period right now, you have a significant uh, impact, um, expanding impact of China, first of all, through vaccine diplomacy, where literally in just recent weeks, we've seen um, China's offer of, of expanded access through Sinovac and other vaccines to Brazil and the Dominican Republic, um, caused both to reopen uh, their 5G networks to Huawei. And also, of course, the role that Sinovac is currently playing in the Venezuelan uh, vaccine uh, campaign. In addition to that, you have increasing importance of Chinese product demand, especially this year, while the Chinese economy is is growing at 8%, while traditional other uh, customers like the US and Europe are are still in doldrums. Um, You have the prospect that just as happened in 2008, that in the coming year or two, you will have many European and Asia-oriented companies selling off their poorly performing Latin American assets, clearing the way for a dramatic expansion in Chinese companies in strategic sectors, everything from lithium and other mining sectors uh, to construction, construction, telecommunications, um, ports, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you also have a combination, especially after COVID, of desperate and populist uh, governments uh, who um, are open to doing more things with the Chinese. Again, in Latin America, you've had a relative um, rapid expansion. You have the Venezuelan regime of Nicolas Maduro, who is uh, surviving and beginning to move forward with more oil exports to China, as well as Russia. You have um, the deepening of the the turn to the the left or the return to the left um, by the Peronist government in Argentina, of of Cristina and Alberto Fernandez. You have uh, the return of, of the leftist. Moss government under Luis Arce in, in, in Bolivia. Uh, you had the narrow loss of, of a risk of the left coming into Ecuador uh, just this week, but you now have the prospect of a new leftist populist government possibly coming into power in Peru in the second round of, of elections coming up there. So um, let me um, uh, just say a, a few things. How do I see uh, the civil affairs strategy is, is key to this, I think number one, as I alluded to before, um, one key strategic focus has to be in preventing cycles of bad government performance and unrest that helps bring these populist governments to power that open up the door to China and Russia competitors. Number two is um, uh, civil affairs can provide direct support to stabilization in in moments that actually can, again, open the door through destabilization, thinking of, for example, pandemic response or natural disaster response, particularly important in Central America and and the Caribbean, um, as well as uh, supporting the civil affairs and other capability of our partners in the region so that they can Play an effective role in, in those responses. Again, kind of inoculating against the type of destabilization that brings populists uh, to, to power. Uh, number three, the importance of um, uh, formatting through the, the type of, of trust and and, and partnership that uh, our previous speaker talked about, um, of a solid U.S. military to partner nation military relationships. That um, in moments when you have a wrestling between um, you know f- pro us uh, institutions and maybe other institutions like foreign ministries that want to do more business with China, um, that uh, those institutions um, are a bulwark for resisting that influence as well as of course uh, you know providing valuable uh, intel uh, benefit to, to the United States and understanding what's going on. Number four, partner of choice. Um, obviously, um, the degree to which uh, you know our partners feel that they are giving getting valuable things from us, especially in the civil affairs arena That helps to uh, limit uh, direct military advances by turning to the Chinese and others uh, for, for services. Um, and, and, and fifth, um, the idea of strengthening good governance, um, the role of, you know, boosting support for transparency, democracy, et cetera, in those local networks that a previous um, uh, speaker alluded to, um, attention to procedures. These type of things limit the ability of central governments to turn to um, these uh, these kind of win-win deals where the country is, you know, sold to, to, to Chinese interests. Um, and then finally, let me just... Uh, and with some of the things that I see as, as challenges or, or opportunities. Um, number one challenge, especially in Latin America, but I think it's generalizable, is, is having realistic and useful effects. Um, so um, I, I wish uh, civil affairs could be set up um, to uh, administer a small electric shock in any time a civil affairs officer has, has a plan that says that the strategic concept is to get our local partners to, to like us more than the Chinese. Oftentimes, there are tactical level effects that support strategic goals, but the message is not the the goal. Um, One thing, for example, and I'm just going to dive into a few interesting pieces. Um, the degree to which civil affairs teams operate in dangerous areas that are sometimes difficult for USAID and, and others to operate in, um, that basically areas in which uh, Chinese uh, construction companies or others may also be operating in the area, an opportunity to gather information on local frustrations with the Chinese, uh, Chinese manipulations of, of those local elites um, in, in case data. And this creates two opportunities. One, of course, is the direct intel benefits, which, of course, should be shared not only, across DOD, but uh, uh, through the broader IC, um, but also going beyond Intel, transforming Intel into public diplomacy. Um, having spent a year at the State Department on the policy planning staff, I, I can tell you uh, so... that one of the things that we need a, a great deal um, more more of is um, local knowledge of those frustrating activities of the Chinese um, and, and how we can use those and deploy those bad behaviors when our senior leaders go to the region or, for example, in our public diplomacy campaign, beyond just DOD PAOs, uh, including at at state and other levels. Um, Number two, understanding these strategic effects um, don't always work effectively through getting the locals on our side. often, unfortunately, is the business elites that civil affairs teams may not be working with um, that are the ones who sell out to Chinese interests. Also, we need to be attentive to the risk that although we might be well aligned with the local elites of the current governments, um, the risk is that government change can uh, basically put at risk everything that's just, uh, just, just, just happened. There's also a question of exclusivity, making sure that the civil affairs plans, when they provide benefits to local communities, that we orchestrate things in ways that um, local communities and and governments aren't able to take the good from our civil affairs teams. At the same time, they also take the money from the Chinese and the Chinese project as, as well. Uh, Also, the question of scalability, and this, of course, has come up in Afghanistan and Iraq and and elsewhere. Um, Scalability in in the sense that you can make the argument that the level at which we're competing against Chinese money, that there are some projects that, frankly, are better put in the belly of USAID or even, you know, better yet, Development Finance Corporation or its equivalent. And and how do we complement those type of things rather than try to make a really, really, really big civil affairs effort? Um, The question of coordination and coherence. What I mean by that is, again, the ever-present difficulties of programs being turned on, turned off, restructured, uh, obviously restrictions of, of authorities, uh, Section 333, 333 funds, and, and things like that. How do we deliver a coherent product that's coordinated with other embassy team efforts in the country or, or across the theater? Um, and the final two risks I see, number one is the question of social media. Um, We've Probably don't talk about this as much as we can, but just understanding the risks of the civil affairs operations taking place in a situation in which um, there is a perception that our adversaries exploit against us—that we are there to collect intel. There's a perception that a civil affairs versus a local presence um, represents some type of nefarious gringo militarization, etc. And so, understanding how we protect how we get our messages and our trust and not have our own presence used against us in the social media age. And then finally, um, and this is something actually that another one of my SRP students alerted me to, we need to recognize that in the current digital age, that many of the places where civil affairs teams will be going into, not just Latin America, but Africa and elsewhere, um, may be operating in the domain where the telecommunications systems and other systems are built by walkway or ZTE. Or we're operating in a domain where we're doing functions um, under the observation of Chinese built smart cities frameworks. In other words, how do we do things in great power competition, um, pushing back against the Chinese in in a technological framework that may have been actually built by the very adversaries that we're trying to work against? Bottom line is we need to do more thinking about this, um, whether it's workshops or more academic work. We need to dedicate more resources to the problem. We need to rethink our organizations to how we achieve effects and scalability and coordinate more effectively. We need to rethink the authorities that we have available for civil affairs in, in this new concept. And finally, we need to rethink how we can at greater scale, not just scale up our own civil affairs, but scale up our ability to transfer capability to our partners, um, who may be at the end of the day, those who are the most key to um, helping us in that pushback against the Chinese. So thank you very much for your time and attention. I look forward to the questions.
0: Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team, and our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com.
2: Do you have an idea for an upcoming podcast or know someone who may be a good person to interview? Contact us at capodcasting at gmail.com. Okay. Uh, Tim, over to you. Uh, I know it's kind of early in Hawaii and thank you for uh, joining us, uh, Tim.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank you uh, to the uh, Civil Affairs Association, uh, Brigadier General, Stockwell, uh panel members that I'm serving with and everybody else out there on uh, Zoom land. Today, I'll focus on China's current influence operations in the Indo-PACOM AOR and how valuable of an asset civil affairs is in this fight. Uh, 18 months ago, I published an article about China and the global conflict they are currently waging and if left unchecked, will dominate the diplomatic intelligence, military and economic uh, global, global power by 2050. First, we must understand Uh, the Chinese approach to warfare, the the strategic approach the Chinese are taking and how those manifest on the ground, especially in the Indo-PACOM AOR. Second is how civil affairs is critical to the human domain. The human domain is where the conflict starts in competition, and I would add is decisive in the competition phase by setting conditions in order to deter, deny, or defeat the People's Liberation Army. I'll start with the Chinese approach to warfare and how critical it is to understand the Chinese approach to warfare and what they call unrestricted warfare. The new principles of war are no longer using armed force to compel the enemy to submit to one's will, but instead using all means, including armed forces or non-armed forces, lethal and non-lethal means to compel the enemy to accept one's interest. We would do well to understand this mindset. This means China, Chinese contractors, economic leverage, disinformation and influence, wolf diplomacy will impact your operations in Indo-PACOM. The Chinese Communist Party extensive military expansion, improvements in joint integration, political coercion of regional neighbors and twisted whole of government approach are detrimental to a free and open Indo-Pacific. The way the CCP controls the domestic information domain or social casting with its citizens has spread to Hong Kong and will be exported to many countries in the name of security or civil society. And that was mentioned before in uh, Latin America. Uh, China's uh, published political objectives clearly define its strategic goals of becoming the premier world power that supplants the United States in the Pacific and changes the existing world order. China's focus is on displacement, not replacement. Some facts to consider. 18% of the world's GDP is built on China right now. China is preferred goods trading partner by 64 countries compared to only 38 for the United States. China is three times more powerful in global manufacturing than the Soviet was at the height of the Cold War. China produces 22% of all global manufacturing this is a country whose economic power is will only increase in the coming decade. Where and how does China use this power? Look at Hong Kong. They rewrote the laws. They control who can actually run for office. They took control of Twitter and all social media. The economic impact is flowing into Hong Kong. Nearly 980 billion more dollars have flown in since the, lock, the Chinese lockdown of Hong Kong. Huawei, which was mentioned earlier, and I'm glad to see uh, many of the panel members mention it, the telecommunications giant that the U.S. called out and the European allies. It was a three-year campaign. Stop Huawei. Stop Huawei. Results are out of 189 countries, only 12 have banned Huawei. Remember, China is a country that in 2001 became part of the World Trade Organization, and since then has become less free and is spreading its so-called progressive socialism with social casting to many countries. You must impart this knowledge on our allies and our partners. You must embrace the fact that there will be positional advantages around the globe and the United States' ability to limit China's maneuverability or obtain a permanent positional advantage is critical. So what do you do? What does what the civil affairs, folks out there, what can they do? The most important point for civil affairs professionals is to focus on furthering strategic and operational objectives and competition. Those objectives are access, information, I'm sorry, um, messaging, economics, the environment assessments are gonna be critical in this campaign. And how this information is fed into the intelligence cycle or a cycle of knowledge for the operational commander How does that information get there? What is that post-mission essential? What is the pre-mission essential key pieces of information? What are the collaboration tools and reporting architecture that is required of civil affairs personnel in this fight? What are the mechanisms for civil affairs uses now for social media network analysis, near real-time analysis? Because timing is going to be so important in this flash-to-bang the ability to influence, counter influence in this domain. Civil affairs operates in the green space. Intel guys watch the red, ops guys watch blue, but CA operates in the green space that identifies all the other nuances, the subtle items in the operational environment that are key to identifying this Chinese influence operations. Integrating civil affairs observations into our Intel architecture, our operational architecture so they can pass back useful information that they discovered during the normal course of their duties, civil reconnaissance, analysis, evaluation. i ask everybody out there in the civil affairs, you know, how would you approach this? How would you look at shutting off influence, democracy, free trade, business opportunity, education, communications, the strategic education of our civil affairs personnel on how the, you know how the Chinese strategic goals are implemented on the ground is significant, and I would say that we probably need to look at all of our training and education that we um, for our uh, officers and NCOs and the civil affairs, as well as the Army and the other armed services. Identify what forums, interviews, engagements would yield a high return on investment for our senior leaders. Uh, Brigadier General Stockwell used to be out here in the region all the time, and. And I would tell you that's, that's a strategic weapon to have that Brigadier General show up in these countries. And so you have to think how you use and leverage that, but that call, comes from your ability in your collection and assessment of those environments to send out a strategic weapon, which is that general officer that is out there engaging with those country and our strengthening our partnerships and alliances. Engagements are targeting operations. They have to be very planned, well thought out and, and the effect and the outcome that you want. Prepping the environment, build out those networks, illuminate and highlight resource predation activities, depth, trap, diplomacy, infrastructure building, all those nuances that civil affairs are so attuned at reporting and and understanding because of their in-country experience. And finally, reassure our allies and partners that we're committed to them They're, you know, we're committed to them. We're committed to the issues in the region, which helps us maintain that permanent presence. That civil engagement is so important. Hopefully I've provided everyone a better understanding of China's current state of play and how critical civil affairs is in this great power competition. Thank you.
2: Tim, uh, and uh, to the whole uh, panel, uh, thank you very much uh, for those uh, strategic comments there.
1: Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of One CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.
0: In civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com.